0: Do you want to change the world? Do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to really matter for something? Or have you given up on all that? Have you become cynical and pessimistic? Don't give up hope, you can. According to Jesus Christ you can be part of a movement that is turning the world upside down, restoring it, healing it, reconciling it, blessing it, doing it good in every way. 2,000 years ago, Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down, and he called his disciples to him. We're talking about a small group of mixed-ability, low-income followers. They were not the elite. They were not particularly educated. They did not have family money. They had no real influence. They had northern accents. He looked them in the eye and said, Oi! You are going to change the world for the better. Because you, plural, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are grand global statements. And you see here that Jesus' program for change is not a political manifesto, as we're used to them, of some kind of structural vision of top-down societal change. It is more a matter of a personal transformation of individuals in community. A community where God rules over the whole of their life, so it's a kingdom. And character in this kingdom, the inner disposition, the inner you, is everything. Now, it is is possible to miss just how enormous this claim is that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world if we're Jesus' followers. Helmut Thieliker was a pastor in Stuttgart, in Germany, just after the Second World War in the mid-1940s. During the worst of the post-war years, he preached a series of sermons that uh, electrified the city of Stuttgart in those ruined years. And the series was translated into English in this book, Life Can Begin Again. And this is what uh, T. says about uh, the salt and the light. I wonder whether we comprehend the full enormousness of what Jesus is saying here. After all, what he's saying is this. You disciples, standing here before me, You inconspicuous, insignificant people, you miserable little crowd, far more miserable than you realise yourselves, for I alone can see what you will do, how you will falter and fail in your little corner, how you will fall asleep when you should be watching, how you will deny me when you should confess me, you wretched little troop, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now listen carefully, says Teelica. Jesus does not say you should be the salt of the earth, as if we could accomplish it. Rather, he says, you are salt and light, simply because your Father in heaven called you to be salt and light. Do you understand this? For it means nothing less than this. The whole earth will be salted and lighted by you. The world will have to reckon with you. The state, industry, politics culture all will be within the sphere of your power isn't that enough to make one wonder if here somebody is not speaking sheer nonsense there's a tremendous soaring passion in this saying we need to talk about christian self-confidence in order to express this passion germany mid-1940s see how enormous the claim is the salt of the earth the light of the world. How does it work? How will the world be changed? Well, I've got two simple images today and six enormous implications. Two simple images and six massive implications. Let's just turn back to our scripture in Matthew chapter 5 and we'll read it again just to refresh our memory. And in the Church Bible, it is on page 969. Page 969. You and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's the language. You are. Jesus is talking about who you are if you are a follower of him, a disciple or what we now call a Christian. You are this. Now, he's already described the essential character of his followers. We've thought about this the last couple of times. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They're people who feel they've got nothing to offer God. They have no merits of their own. They come before God with nothing in their bank balance, an overdraft, you might say. And they come humbly before God, and they're mourning for their sin, and they look inside, and all they can see is, is darkness and waste. And they come humbly, and they say, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And a person like that says, Jesus is made meek. That means gentle, tender-hearted towards others, humble in spirit and outlook. And such a person doesn't want to just stay in mourning and meekness, but also is, is hungry and thirsty because they want to know God more, and they want to see God's rule in their life and in the world around them. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that makes them pure in heart. It makes them peacemakers, not peace breakers or peace fakers. It means also that they will be persecuted because the world around will not like what it sees. Such people, uh, Jesus has described in their essential character. But now he turns to their influence for good in the world. He says, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You see, Jesus knows that if you can change a person's understanding of who they are, Then you can change the way they are in the world. If you can change a person's understanding of who they are, you can change their their way they are, that they behave in the world. Educators know this. There's a Roman Catholic primary school in South Manchester, it has this slogan Be who God wants you to be, and so set the world on fire. Now I've often looked at that slogan and thought, I hope there are no arsonists in this school. Be who God wants you to be and so set the world on fire. How did the school burn down? <laughs> Educators know this. Statesmen know this. Winston Churchill gave a broadcast to the British people February the 9th, 1941. He'd received a letter from the, the President of the United States, Roosevelt. And he, he, he gave this reading over the radio. It is absolutely electrifying. Look what he says to the people. What is the answer that I shall give in your name to this great man, this thrice chosen head of a nation of 130 million? Here is the answer which I will give to President Roosevelt. Put your confidence in us. Give us your faith and your blessing, and under providence all will be well. We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. Now that's preaching. If you can convince someone of who they are, you can give them purpose and inspire them with strength for a great trial. So here is the greatest teacher, the greatest statesman, the King of Kings, Jesus, speaking to his humble band of followers. What are you salt and light and in the original language it's very emphatic you are the salt of the earth you plural are the light of the world these are simple everyday essentials everybody knows what salt and light are but here's the clever bit what does he actually mean salt i've got some atlantic sea salt lots of flavor um, we had a, a barbecue at our house last summer with some Brazilians and some other Latin Americans and a bunch of people from the church. And one of the Brazilians brought along a piece of meat, a big piece of meat, that he would procured from a Brazilian market in town. And uh, he also brought this pack of salt. This stuff is amazing. It's really big pieces. It's like huge kind of chunks of it. And you have to kind of, it's really coarse. It Tastes fantastic. And he got this, he took half a bag of this salt and he rubbed it into this big piece of meat. And then he slapped this thing onto the barbecue and it starts cooking and this this aroma's going up into the air. And at that moment, a weird thing happened. All the men in the house mysteriously appeared (laughs) and stood around the barbecue. I don't know how they they came to to, to do it. There's this large piece of tender beef being cooked to perfection, rubbed in salt, and we tasted that day. Wow, salt really makes a difference. But we have a problem here in in interpreting this passage, because we have to ask, which use of salt is Jesus actually talking about? Because salt can be used for many things, can't it? Many readers have looked at the main use of salt in Jesus' day. It was used for preservation, In the times before fridges and refrigeration, salt was the main way that people kept food from going bad. You could stop something from rotting by rubbing salt into it. So, they conclude, Jesus is talking about his followers' influence in culture. They are to stop moral rot. They are to stop things going bad. They are preventative. They are to preserve whatever is good in a culture. And if you decide on that, cue a sermon about preserving the good. But other people have said, hang on a minute, hang on, hang on. Jesus doesn't actually say that here. And we know that Jesus is a Bible guy. Not one single bit of the Bible is going to disappear, he says. Isn't the main reference for Jesus thinking the Old Testament? So shouldn't we look for how salt is used in the Old Testament? So they flip back in their Bible and they find Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Season all your grain offerings with salt Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So in the sacrificial system, where people came to the temple and made offerings to God, there was always salt included in the offering. And he talks here about the salt of the covenant. So what could that mean? Well, in some way, salt is connected with being a covenant member of God's people. Maybe he means, he's talking about his followers keeping his covenant. But... We have a problem here, because when we look at the Bible in the ancient world, we find there is actually more than two uses of salt. One of the major scholarly works on Matthew's Gospel is by two guys, Davies and Allison. The first volume of of their commentary has more than 700 pages, and it's just on the first eight chapters. Davies and Allison have done all the research, and they found 11 uses of salt in the Bible in the ancient world. Salt is prescribed as an element to be added to sacrifices. We've seen that. Uh, salt, the salt of the covenant. Uh, in Second in Kings, Elisha performs a miracle and uses salt in order to purify bad drinking water. The connection between salt and purity is found. Fourthly, salt is a condiment for food, Job 6, verse 6. In other places, salt is a preservative. In another part, we found that, uh, that uh, salt is seen as a necessity. It's a basic need of life. In Ezra chapter 4, those who eat the salt of the palace can't be witnesses against the king because salt, to take salt with someone is a sign of loyalty. In Mark 9 verse 50, salt is linked with peace. Colossians 4 verse 5, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. In the, the rabbi's writing, salt is sometimes associated with wisdom. Wise speech is salty. And in the Greek world, salt is seen as the wit of conversation. Which one is it? So we have a problem here with our interpretation. Uh, The answer gives us a good principle of how to interpret the Bible, which is this, focus on the foreground, not on the background. Focus on the foreground of the text, less on the background. Therefore, we need to ask, in this text, Matthew 5, Does Jesus highlight any one use of salt? Is there anything in the immediate context that suggests he's talking about one use of salt over others? And I think the answer is no. His main point, actually, is that salt must be distinctive or it becomes worthless. Salt must retain its saltiness, its distinctive character or it's no good, it can be thrown out and trampled underfoot. All its goodness, all its beneficial impact relies on it being different, doesn't it? If that pack of salt had no salty properties or taste, we would not use it. The key statement in this Sermon on the Mount is, do not be like them, do not be like the world around, be different. If it allows itself, if the people of God allow themselves to lose their saltiness, they become totally worthless. Now, Zoe, who is a chemist, may argue that salt can technically not lose its saltiness. I'm looking at her for some kind of signal. But, Zoe, Jesus isn't teaching a chemistry lesson. (laughs) Scholars reckon that the salt that was available to his disciples was actually quite an impure mixture. Too many impurities, and it indeed would lose its saltiness. The main point, then, is make sure you are keeping your distinctiveness. Do we then have to choose one use of salt over the others? No, I think we have to look at the context. The Beatitudes, that description of the character of Jesus' people, is all about this completely different inner disposition. So radical, poor in spirit, meek, humble, mournful, thirsting for righteousness, a peacemaker, merciful. And then after this section, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to take us right through the end of chapter 7, show us all about what a righteous life lived under God, Jesus' rule, will look like. It is salty in many different ways. Salty in the way we speak, the way we relate to uh, the opposite sex, salty in the way we uh, handle our emotions, salty in our actions, our generosity, all sorts of ways uh, our, Jesus shows us how to be salt. And notice there that the global impact, the salt of the earth, This is not limited to just one place or one kind of people or one social class or one sort of educational background. It's the salt of the whole earth. The second image is also universal, the light of the world. And we all know how important light is, don't we? When I was a child, we went on holiday to North Wales and my parents took us, somebody Welsh is going to tell me how to pronounce this afterward, okay? On the Llecwed... Caverns Slate Mine Tour. We went to an old slate mine. We got into this miner's lift, which was really scary. It racketed around a lot, and we went down. We're down, 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 hundreds of feet, down into the depths of this slate mine. And at the bottom, we walked along the mine shaft, just really cramped in. And we got to this place, and the tour guide, who had a lamp in his hand, said, put your hand in front of your face. And at that moment, he turned the lamp off. And of course... You couldn't, see, you couldn't even see a hand three inches from your face. It was, it was terrifying. I just imagine being trapped in such a place with no light. Jesus makes this enormous claim to his disciples. You are the light of the whole world. Sounds good, but what does he mean? Again, there's more than one use of light imagery in the Bible. It's often used as a symbol of truth. God's truth brings light to us. It enlightens our minds. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, says the psalmist, and a light to my path. But then light's also associated with life. The beginning of the Bible, you remember, the creation account, let there be light, and there was light, and after that light comes the rest of life. Light is essential for life. John's Gospel begins talking about Jesus and says that He was the light of all mankind, and that light was the life of people. Light is also associated with holiness. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you... See how he's using the image there? image of good and purity and exposing the bad and holiness, fruit of the light. But what about hope? You're all familiar with light breaking in after a long, dark night of sorrow. It's a powerful image of hope, isn't it? Isaiah says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Truth, life, holiness, hope. Which is it? Well, surely Jesus means all of them. The rest of this Sermon on the Mount is going to show a lifestyle of a community that embodies truth, that is full of life, that is holy, and that is full of hope. But again, the main point that he's making here, the main point is that Christian people must be visible. It must be visible. Not hidden, but known. Just as a city on a hill in the ancient world, a town on a hill, in a, in a place with no electric lights and no street lights and no motorway lights, in the darkness you'd always be able to see the city on the hill for miles around. Just as it would be crazy to light a lamp in your house and then immediately put a bucket over the top of it. It must shine, says Jesus. You must shine. Let your light shine before people. And of course, we're all tempted to hide our light because of the hostility and pressure that comes with following Jesus. So if you are a Christian here today, two simple images. This is what you are. all right. If you only get this from today, take it now. You are salt and light in the world. Two images of what you are and what you are to be. Salt and light. And there are six massive implications of what this means. And I'm only gonna be able to spend two minutes on each, okay? Six massive implications. Difference, visibility, goodness, community, hurt, and glory. Difference, visibility, goodness, community, hurt, and glory. Firstly, difference, you must be different. These images of salt and light are essentially things that are different from that around them, and that's what gives them their value. Salt is no good if it's indistinct from the the other thing that it's being rubbed into or or used to taste. Light, the whole point of light is that it's distinct from the darkness. It's different from the darkness. It dispels the darkness. So Jesus is saying in the whole of life, his followers should be distinctive. It should be different from the culture around. Your relationship with your employer and how you respond to him or her should be different. Your relationship with your colleagues, especially the annoying ones, should be distinctive. Your relationship with your family, especially where there's family pain and hurt, should be different. Your relationship with your parents, your children. Your relationship to people you find attractive, but you're not married to. Your use of sex and the way you treat sex. Your use of power. Your money and how you spend it. Your speech should be different. Whether your life is fundamentally all about you or an act of worship to God and service to others, it's fundamentally different to the world around. Christian friends, you must be different. You must be distinctive. You know that. So let me ask now, is there any area of your life right now where you have compromised and blended in with the impurity of the world around? I'm just going to pause for a moment and ask you to pray right now that you'd be able to change that and that the Holy Spirit would help you. difference secondly visibility the whole point of the light which we've already said is that it shines it is visible everyone sees it Don Carson who's a great uh, writer and and speaker grew up in Canada he talks about times hiking and travelling in rural Canada out in the middle of nowhere and he says it's absolutely dark out there you can see the stars but you can't see anything else And he says, in a place like that, if you see a city in in the distance, even dozens of miles away, it casts a light, and you know where you're headed. There's something about it. It's like a beacon of hope. It illuminates. Even the clouds above reflect the light of the city. It gives some kind of guidance and hope and comfort. And Jesus says here, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't light a lamp and then hide it under a a basket. So Christian friend Are you visible? Jesus knows that we will face insults and misunderstanding and hostility. And therefore, we will be tempted to fear and hide. We'll be tempted not to let people know that we're Christians. It's getting harder and harder in this culture. You know, some of the first questions you will be asked to answer will be, so what do you think about this or that aspect of sexual ethics? You know, it's going to be awkward. So the temptation is to hide. Let me ask you, friends, again, we're going to pause for a moment, ask the Holy Spirit to tenderise our conscience. Is there a place where you need to come out of the shadows? Are you visible? Difference, visibility, goodness. Goodness. Images of salt and light are things that do good in society. They do good in relationships. We've thought about all these different uses. The world is a better place because of these people who are salt and light. It's talking about people who are true. They're truthful, they're honest, you can trust them, they have integrity. It's talking about people who are wholesome. There's a goodness about them, a a loveliness. It's talking about people who serve. There's a humility they're not all about lording it over others. They're service oriented. It's all about people who can be generous, people who are kind, people who are gracious, patient, wise, people who are seeking to be pure in an impure world, people who are full of hope, goodness. Christian, are you bringing good to your sphere of influence, wherever it may be? In the universities, in the workplace, at the, in home? family, wherever it may be. Are you a force for good, and do you restrain evil? As awkward as that may be. Difference, visibility, goodness. Fourthly, community. Those of us here who are Western always tend to think about things as an individual. And those of you here who are Eastern realise how silly we are. We always think, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's just me, I'm this little candle. Actually, Jesus uses the image of a city on a hill. A city is a big group of people all living together. It is a community on a hill. A visible community shining out. The combined impact of many lights together, which make up a city at night, illustrate the effect of the community of Jesus' disciples on the surrounding darkness. Here's a lovely quote from a Nicaraguan peasant, a Nicaraguan peasant, he said this, A lit-up city that's on the top of a hill can be seen from far away, as we can see the lights of San Miguelito from very far away, when we are rowing at night on the lake. A city is a great union of people, and as there are a lot of houses together, we see a lot of light. And that's the way our community will be. It will be seen lighted from far away if it is united by love. What a lovely image. That peasant guy got it. And this is why at our church we place such emphasis on being involved in a midweek life group. Because church is not just about Sunday. It's about being in community with others so that together you shine more brightly than you would have just on your own. Distinct difference, visibility, goodness, community. We're nearly there. Hurt. Hurt. This is inevitable too. Look at what he says just before this passage. Blessed and happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying you're going to be happy when you get uh, insulted, people say bad things about you, they take your reputation down, They shun you they talk behind your back maybe persecute you when I was a kid I was very sensitive and uh, I remember my dad said to me once sticks and stones may break my bones but names will always hurt me maybe you're like that and for some of you here the persecution of following Jesus is going to cut deep Chinese friends who choose to follow Jesus may lose their career or their family back home. Muslim friends who choose to follow Jesus may lose everything. Can you risk it all on his promise? Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. There is great hurt in following Jesus. Sixthly, and finally, glory. Glory. How can we find the motivation to stand out for Jesus Christ when we just heard that the going is going to get tough? And our answer is this, verse 16. Or one answer. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Look what happens. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see what he says? As a result of people who persecute you and are hostile... As a result of them seeing your good deeds, something in them gets changed. They get drawn to the light, even as they hate it. And some of them get turned around. And some of them end up glorifying and praising God because of you. You, insignificant person. We already heard that Jesus is calling the little people to himself, the people who haven't got influence, and he's saying you can be the light of the world, and your light will shine in this way, that when you shine, and when you shine brightly, other people will come to know God through you. Other people's eternal destiny will be changed because of you. It's a promise. They will see your good deeds, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. We read earlier on, Rachel had us read from Peter's first letter, It says the same things. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Some of those very haters, some of those people who hate Christians the most will be turned around And we'll glorify God on the day he comes. Peter was there, standing on the mountain, listening to Jesus. And he took those words deep to heart. Six enormous implications for us. Difference. We must be distinct. Visibility. We must be seen. Goodness. We must be good. Community. We must be together. Hurt. We must be in pain and glory we must be shining out so that others come and bring glory to god and they themselves are glorified wow it's a way to live is that how the world gets turned upside down you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world one of the most poignant stories i've heard that illustrates this is a story of a sri lankan preacher uneducated village preacher he used to go around from one place to another preaching in the streets Uh, and he was in a minority in his culture and one time he was in a village and he saw a man out of the corner of his eye who he recognized big very strong man and this man was known as the iron man not because he looked like robert downey jr but because of his great and ferocious strength he was a violent feared criminal he was like he was made of iron hard as nails. He'd been in prison and he'd just got out. And the preacher knew that he hated Christianity so he took a deep breath and carried on with his preaching and the Iron Man saw him, heard what he was saying, came over, grabbed his Bible out of his hand, ripped it up, threw it in the mud and then gave the preacher a, a, a terrible beating. Punched him, kicked him, hurt him very badly and left him lying bleeding on the floor. Crawled away. Sometime later, he recovered. He was patched up and he walked back on his feet and he went back with a new Bible to preach again. And guess who he saw? The Iron Man. There he was again. And he thought to himself, what am I going to do here? So he walked across the road, went up to this man, hugged him, and said Jesus loves you and then he ran for his life <laughs> the, guy who, the guy who told the story said he ran for his life he ran for his life and what happened next that iron man became a pastor he became a pastor and he said no one ever hugged me like that before and no one ever told me they loved me Soul of the earth Light of the world. Can we be confident in that? Let's pray.